Good day. Welcome back to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University. He is, without a doubt, the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, with well over 100 books written. Today we are speaking about the Treaty of Versailles after 100 years. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Uh, Professor Black, I wanted to begin the discussion with two statements. The first one from The Economist, dated the 31st of December in 1999, on the subject of the Treaty of Versailles. Quote, The final crime was a Treaty of Versailles, whose harsh terms would ensure a Second World War. The second statement is from uh, the historian Margaret Macmillan from her book Peacemakers, dealing with the self-same treaty. Uh, quote, it became commonplace to blame everything that went wrong in the 1920s, 1930s on the peacemakers and the settlement that they made in Paris in 1919. When the war came in 1939, it was a result of 20 years of taken or not taken uh, actions and not arrangements made in 1919, unquote. Uh, which of the two statements would you are more inclined to agree with? Oh, very much Margaret Macmillan's. I mean, The Economist is just being stupid. If you think about it, the terms uh, enforced on Germany in 1945 were far, far, far harsher than those of 1919. And yet nobody, to the best of my knowledge, um, argues that um, 1945 was responsible for World War III breaking out with a revanchist Germany 20 years uh, after 1945. So the economist is just talking rubbish. Um, I think what the economist is doing is drawing in a very lazy fashion on a dominant interpretation. And it's part of the interesting perspective that, you know, endlessly people will tell you that it's the winners who write history, which is exactly wrong. It's the losers who write history because they have the incentive to say uh, that everything's terrible. So, uh, you know, just as I think we've discussed this in the case of military history, the way in which the views of the Confederates or um, in the American Civil War or the Germans of the World War One and Two that they were out-resourced led to their defeat, which is just erroneous. It leads a whole lot of other elements in, uh, out of the equation. So also in the case of... Um, in the case of uh, World War I, um, Germany, in practical terms, was given pretty lenient terms. There were a number of reasons for that. I mean, the Allies were not in occupation of Germany. Uh, there was anxiety that Germany might follow Russia into social revolution. Um, but, you know, if you're specifically talking about Germany in which to contrast it, say, in the context of the aftermath of World War I with uh, Austro-Hungary or uh, Turkey, both of those had considerably worse terms enforced on them than Germany did. Uh, what exactly do historians mean when they refer to the Treaty of Versailles? Are they referring just to the treaty with Germany or the treaty with, um, uh, say, Austria, um, the Austrian Republic at that point, which was the Treaty of Saint-Germain, or the, um, the uh, Treaty of Trianon, which was the treaty with um, the Republic of Hungary, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yes. Um, I think, by the way, Hungary was still claiming to be a monarchy, even though the monarch had ended. That's why Admiral Horthy eventually was the regent. But no, you're absolutely right. Uh, Trianon, of course, is in the gardens of Versailles. I mean, the Peace of Versailles is a collective term for the peace treaties signed in the aftermath of World War I. Um, Obviously, the one that tends to excite most um, interest is the one with Germany. But as you correctly say, um, there were peace treaties with the other uh, defeated powers of the, uh, 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 you know, of that alliance. Now, would it be correct to say that there was, for a short period of time in the 1920s, uh, or for that matter, even the early 1930s, a Versailles uh, system, in the same way that, say, historians argue that there was a Congress of Vienna system in the years after 1815. Yes, I think one would say it was more benign than the Congress of Vienna system, but you're exactly right. And of course, Germany, particularly under its foreign minister Stresemann, uh, moved into this uh, uh, into this and was actually relatively rapidly um, brought back into the family of nations. Uh, because uh, I think it's worth pointing out by 1920, 1921, the power that everybody feared was not a revanchist Germany. It was uh, the Soviet Union. I mean, uh, there'd already been um, the Soviets were doing well in the Russian Civil War. Uh, there'd already been a uh, short lived uh, communist republic under Belakun in, in Hungary. Uh, there'd been communist as well as, of course, far right wing conspiracies and violence in Germany. And indeed, in 1920, um, Soviet forces are advancing on Warsaw. So at that point, I think it's fair to say um, there were powerful reasons to start to think that the major anxiety is the Soviet Union. And one of the things one could say about uh, the reinterpretation of the um, Versailles um, system or the world past World War post World War One system in order to bring Germany into it was that it's part of the containment of the Soviet Union, which is so effective in the 1920s and which ultimately, of course, is overturned by both Hitler and Stalin uh, and most clearly by their non-aggression pact in 1939. Um, so I think that one needs to not see Versailles in isolation. One of the great problems is much of the discussion of Versailles has been seen in, obs- in uh, isolation, often re- you know, related to that very ignorant man, you know, the economist Keynes. Um, there is a failure, for example, to look at a wider perspective. There's a failure also to look at the historical perspective. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that France and Germany had fought a number of wars. There had been reparations. Uh, reparations were enforced, for example, on France in 1815. Reparations again are enforced on France uh, by Germany in 1871. Um, the idea that in some way re- reparations were some, you know, appalling cause of, of uh, some sort of, you know, existential uh, disaster forced on the Germans is ridiculous. And as I said, I mean, you know, on that basis, given how the extent to which, for example, the Soviet Union despoiled the uh, economy in, in East Germany and took, uh, you know, infrastructure and etc. out of it when it uh, occupied it, conquered it in 1945, you would have assumed some kind of more aggressive German policy towards the Soviet Union, which didn't happen um, dur- during the Cold War or subsequently. So I'm, what, what I find is very troubling is, and we've discussed this, uh, and what I thought, and I'm very grateful to you for 
bringing it up and having a program on appeasement. What we're discussing is the way in which myths about the interwar period and the Versailles ones in some respect are a counterpart of the appeasement ones. And yet again, what is ironic is the blame is enforced on the British and the French. Um, um, but the, uh, you know, as it is over appeasement, and not as I think we've discussed over on the Germans and the Soviets in that case, um, what is ironic is that these myths are still so prevalent today. And I mean, you, you counterpointed at the uh, the outset, Margaret Macmillan's book with The Economist, what The Economist was saying, of course, it's drivel, but what The Economist was saying is endlessly repeated um, in uh, popular uh, conversation, in you know, popular pu- publication. Um, and it seems to be the norm to, to say that. And in part, it makes one sort of disillusioned instead of good driving out ill in or, you know, in academic um, public discussion. It's the exact opposite that seems to happen. Why for a time for most of the 20s in, uh, in fact, in that in, in actually in, in 30s as well, why for a time did uh, Keynes critique of the treaty have so much purchase? Well, I'm not sure it had particular purchase. I think at that stage it had publicity. I'm not sure that you would have found his views, you know, having much salience at the higher reaches of British government or or French government. Um, But, you know, um, it was uh, he was um, arguing a case in a in a context in which as it were, there was a sort of reaction against what was seen as old men and their values. And I mean, it's um, a rather sad aspect of the 1920s and 30s that what was seen often as um, progressivist uh, movements, one can think here of uh, obviously many people saw fascism and communism in those terms, uh, actually, uh, and, you know, intellectual counterpart, actually, in many senses, were astonishingly uh, malign and that, you know, the old-fashioned liberal virtues were much more prominent. As I've said, I mean, you know, some years ago, I had to give a lecture at the University of Reims, or as the English would call it, Reims. Um, and at the University of Reims, uh, you know, I spent a day or a couple of days, or three days, I think, wandering around the place, looking at museums and things. And uh, one of the things you notice there is how, with the exception of the cathedral, which has been rebuilt successfully, so much of the city is very ugly. And of course, the city was very ugly because it was largely leveled by uh, German artillery. And one of the major uses of reparations by the French, uh, insofar as they were able to get them, uh, was to rebuild places like Reims. And of course, the interesting thing is there was no equivalent um, as far as German cities were concerned because they hadn't had that damage. And again, I, I do think there is a, a real failure here to both consider the situation from the French point of view and, um, you know, also to consider the contrast with World War II. You see, there is the counter-critique of, of the peace settlement after World War I. You're giving me the critique it was too harsh, which I think is rubbish. There is the counter-critique, um, which I think doesn't really look at practicalities, which was, is that it wasn't harsh enough, that, you know, it would have been better if Germany had been weakened comparably to Austria or to Hungary. It might have been better if a separate state had been established in the Rhineland or uh, as of course Foch um, mentioned as a possibility or in southern Germany and that this would have made it harder 
for for Germany to subsequently rise up again and challenge the the um, you know the peace system. Now, I so happen to think that wasn't really practical in that context, but that criticism is one that doesn't tend to be mentioned. Uh, you know, there is this argument that the very weakness of the Versailles settlement is that it was not strong enough and that in practical terms, it was the belief that it was what wasn't strong enough, which is one of the factors that in- encouraged uh, during World War Two. And there were other factors as well, the British and the Americans to insist and the Soviets as well to insist on unconditional surrender and to emphasize very clearly the need as they saw it, not just to destroy destroy Nazism, but to destroy what they thought of as a German authoritarian military culture and social system. So, you know, they have this discussion. I mean, Stalin facetiously remarks, I'm not sure it was particularly facetious in Stalin's case, um, that, you know, peace would only come if they shot tens of thousands of German army officers. I mean, the point being that I don't think that that was exactly practical. It certainly wasn't practical in 1919. But actually, if you were thinking about saving the peace, rather than being worried about reparations, you would possibly have gone ahead and shot tens of thousands of German army officers in 1919. Uh, do you, then I take it you would agree with the Zara Steiner, um, argument that it was the severity of the treaties with Austria, Hungary, and Bulgaria, which helped to ensure that they endured and that the, in, in essence, the defeated powers were too weakened to, uh, carry out a revision of the settlement. Yes, I think. That I would agree with that. I mean, and I think it's worth pointing out that although, um, you know, Austria, as a result of the Anschluss in 1938, um, merged with Germany uh, and was an active, uh, you know, participant in World War II, um, I think it's fair to say that if you're looking at the geopolitics of Europe at the present moment, uh, Austria is still and Hungary is still essentially um, you know, the products of the Versailles settlement. Um, and I think in many respects, the, the peace treaties enforced on them were more prudent than that on Germany. The problem in the case of Germany, and there's many things, first of all, Germany hadn't been conquered, um, it was unstable, and of course there was the need to find somebody to sign a treaty with, uh, which was important, and if you insisted on two punitive peace terms, you might not have had that, though I'm not so sure of that, but you know, that's an issue. But partly also in the, and I'm not blaming President Wilson, I'm just simply observing, in the idea of national self-determination, which he so clearly and strongly supported um, in Europe, um, the there were a lot of Germans and, you know, to have given uh, what are now areas such as what used to be called um, Eastern Pomerania or Silesia, uh, to have given those to Poland in um, 1919 would have been to create an enormous problem, an irredentinist problem. And of course, that aspect of the settlement was only achieved after World War II by what you might regard as ethnic cleansing. I mean, the large, the large movement westwards, enforced movement westwards of Germans, including in the case of uh, the, the uh, what was then Czechoslovakia from the Sudetenland. Um, and it's worth bearing in mind that an aspect of the peace treaty between Greece and Turkey in 1923 was the compulsory sort of repatriation from each country to the other of, of Greeks and Turks. 
Um, so I think that there are many issues that would have made it hard to have gone to have gone for a harsher settlement in in 1919. But were people to have been more concerned about long term issues, they might well have pressed for harder ones. I mean, it's very rapidly after 1919 that the. Um, German army uh, starts to make deals with the uh, Soviets for, um, you know, military cooperation, providing technology to the Soviets in return for being able to train in uh, in, Ger- in the Soviet Union and thus evade the restrictions of the Peace of Versailles. Um, the war crime trials after World War I are a bit of a joke because they're essentially left to the Germans and they essentially don't bother. Um, so, you know, you could argue that uh, militarism is not really knocked out in Germany after World War One, And it's really not that it doesn't really happen until uh, World War Two. On the other hand, the World War Two requires not simply uh, the actual conquest and occupation of Germany, but also the prior large scale bombing of German cities, which shows in a devastating fashion to German civilians that their military cannot protect them, and which in fact is in a way a, a very crucial necessity, a very crucial prelude to post-World War II uh, peace and the absence of revanchism in the case of both Germany and Japan was that very wartime bombing. Do you agree with uh, the Stephen Shucker argument that there was in fact American reparations paid to Germany via loans that Americans made to Germany in the mid to late 1920s, which were never in fact repaid? Yes, and I remember my friend Harold James once said to me, he said, you know, what German towns spent the 1920s doing was building things like swimming pools. I mean, it was not a um, it was not a period of the kind of enforced. Of, I, mean, I don't think Keynes and his protagonists really understood what was going on. I think that was one of the great problems. You know, I'm an academic. I've spent my life among academics. I have to tell you. Academics can be very bright, but also extraordinarily stupid. And one of the things that um, you often find is the most famous, and Keynes' classic example of that, are often those who go for a simple explanation rather than emphasizing the ambiguities. Now, Shuka, for example, very able man. I remember years ago meeting him in the... uh, uh, affairs um, étranger, the archives, from Ministry Archives in Paris. You know, a good archival scholar looking at what went on. Ditto with Zara Steiner, good archival scholar looking at what is going on. I think bluntly, you don't get that with Keynes, and you don't get that with people like you know the people you cited from the Economist. So inherently, they are dependent. I mean, this is a very important, as you will know, methodological or conceptual point. Essentially, they're dependent on re-skimming a very thin layer of diatribe rather than, you know, dwelling deeply into the situation underlying it. Now, if you're looking at contemporary commentary that interests me, I mean, I did a book some years ago on geopolitics and one of the people uh, looking at the, uh, the situation in 1919, 1920, and in fact, advising the government, uh, you know, he'd been a parliamentarian, he was a man of some eminence, um, Sir Halford Mackinder, the great founder of geopolitics. And what he's arguing is the great danger 
Um, and in a sense, he's drawing on his pre-war uh, um, sort of thesis as well. But the, the great danger is a Russo-German realignment or alignment. And indeed, uh, I cited my book on interwar uh, military history, a report from the British General Staff of 1919, which in my view was influenced by Mackinder's um, ideas. Uh, Mackinder at that stage was the British High Commissioner in South Russia. You know, he was linked in with the army because the British had troops there, in which they're arguing the very same thing, that the real danger is a Russo-German alignment. And of course, people had seen that in 1918, um, in that brief period between the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and the end of the war, when Germany had been able to move towards a one-front war against the West because it had been able to do a deal with the communists in the way the Romanovs were not to do. And we had to see that again in the 20s in the, um, the relationships between the German army and the Soviets. We're to see it most clearly in 1939 to 1941. And you could argue they're in a very, very, very different context. You're to see it later with American fears, anxieties about German Ostpolitik, and indeed with American concerns at the moment about chumminess between um, uh, Germany and Russia at the moment. But if we just go back specifically um, to 1919-1920, I think there is this very difficult situation and I'm talking here about the serious people who are making British policy, uh, the strategists. There's this really difficult situation. If you leave Germany really weak, is there the danger that it might either succumb to communism or ally straight out with the Russians? And in fact, I noticed um, this, this view. I mean, I noticed um, a letter from the, I think it's General Horn, the, you know, one of the British Army commanders, um, saying to his wife in late 1918, his correspondence being published by the Army Record Society, saying, you know, I mean, we've really got to be careful about how much we thrash the Germans because this is what might happen. So there is this broader strategic concern, problem, perspective. And again, most of the discussion on Versailles doesn't really capture it because it doesn't always address broader strategic interests. Would you uh, state, would you agree with the idea that the treaty would have enjoyed greater legitimacy both in Germany and elsewhere if the Germans had been able to negotiate freely with the Entente powers rather than being presented with the ultimatum or diktat, as the Germans would say, with a very short uh, deadline, um, and that instead what should have occurred was the Germans would have been allowed to freely negotiate, a la the French at the Congress of Vienna in 1815. Uh, no, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, the difference in the French and the Congress of Vienna, of course, is that Louis XVIII uh, who had been an exile in Britain, had returned. So it was not, at that point, Napoleon who was uh, negotiating. So I think that's the so it's, that's a, you know, a non-issue. That doesn't come up. And, of course, after Napoleon came back, um, the Allies then, in the, as it were, the Treaty of Paris that follows the Congress of Vienna, enforce much tougher terms. They add reparations. They add an occupation of France uh, until the reparations are paid, um, with, in fact, the Duke of Wellington in command of a multinational um, um, uh, occupation force, and they also annex from France the uh, areas around Maubeuge and the Saar, in fact, what it would be the Sombrange Saar coalfield. So, uh, no, I don't accept that, that analogy at all. As far as it being a legitimate treaty, it was a legitimate treaty. Defeated people often don't like the treaties which their defeat has forced upon them, but it was a legitimate treaty. 
So you don't differentiate, say, Ebert and Schneiderman with uh, the Kaiserreich uh, leadership? No, I mean, you see, my point is this, that the Germans had lost. Obviously, you know, you have a successor government, but that does not mean that you are going to give that successor government terms as if they hadn't been part of, or their state hadn't been part of, a a dangerous um, uh, opponent which had done enormous damage. So in my, in my view, no. I mean, in my view, it was a perfectly legitimate international treaty. And as I said, I mean, you know, we can think about the situation after World War II. As you all know, there was a long time in which the Germans prevaricated, to put it bluntly, over the Oder-Neisse line, the, um, the, what is now the border between Germany and Poland. And the West Germans have prevaricated about that and refused to acknowledge that for a long time. The fact of the matter is they'd lost. It was a legitimate treaty. You do not, uh, as it were, rest the legitimacy of treaties on whether the defeated people like them. Would it be correct to say that you would not agree with the argument of someone like, say, uh, E.H. Carr, that the geopolitical stabilization of Europe after 1919 was pretty much impossible to the mid to long term because the two biggest European powers, uh, Germany and the Soviet Union, were dissatisfied with the status quo antebellum and the potentially, in any case, the greatest world power, the United States, had completely withdrawn from the European theater. No, I wouldn't agree with that. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, the... um First of all, it leaves out the notion of deterrence. It leaves out the extent to which Germany and the Soviet Union arguably would never have been satisfied unless they'd been able to do what they subsequently do do in 1939 and to 1941, which is carve up Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union. Carr, of course, is well known as an apologist for the Soviet Union. He was, you know, the Soviets weren't going to be satisfied while countries like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia were outside their ken. Um, the the Germans in that period were already having quite strong views on Lebensraum. I mean, obviously, Hitler reconceptualizes that, but he doesn't originate it. Um, so, no, I think that's a ridiculous view. But it reminds me, I recently went and heard an absurd lecture on Monday by a woman called Bridget Kendall, head of a Cambridge college, in which asked by a questioner, it was about Putin's Russia, asked by a questioner about the threat that Putin's Russia posed. She actually said that she thought the United States and Britain were much more of a threat to the world order at the present moment. And I just thought to myself, this is ridiculous. But of course, what we're talking about are these essential uh, issues and problems. If you are to say that peace is dependent on the consent of all powers in the system, which essentially is what you were saying, then what you are going to have to do is accept that there are powers who are not going to um, wish to restrain yourself, restrain themselves. And in practical terms, the way that you deal with that is through processes of multilateral deterrence. So, you know, the argument that NATO has uh, helped to play the crucial role in stabilizing 
um, Europe in the last, since World War II, uh, something aided, of course, by the thermonuclear and then thermonuclear weaponry of the United States and to a lesser extent Britain and France, is to my view apparent. I mean, you might argue if you wanted to play counterfactuals, but I'm not sure counterfactuals will really help us very much, uh, that the Versailles settlement would have been maintained if there'd been the equivalent of, you know, uh, of nuclear power to, to nuclear weaponry to back it up. I'm not sure that's terribly helpful. But I don't think it is really pertinent, as I said at the outset, to, to shift the blame in the way that so much of the discussion of Versailles does. What about the American aspect? If the Americans had, post-1919, uh, made a um, commitment to the status quo ante of uh, the treaty, would that have made a big difference subsequently? I don't know. I mean, that's a very interesting uh, question, and I simply don't know. The uh, After all, the that American um, sort of guarantee um, was one that was, if given in the context of 1919-20, might not necessarily have been fulfilled in, let's just say, 1938 or 1939. So, A, I don't know. B, it is worth bearing in mind that as far as Turkey was concerned, actually the 1920 agreement was overthrown pretty rapidly. Um, and the, you know, you can look at that in several different ways, that it was overthrown, that Turkey ended up without uh, the restrictions placed upon it in 1920. So there was no uh, British occupying forces, the Greeks were out of Anatolia, there was no French or Italian zones of influence, etc. And one way of looking at it is to say that um, Actually, um, you know, that brought a certain, you know, it proved possible to stabilize the situation in that part of the world with because the uh, Ataturk regime did not then have a determination to regain control of what had been the Arab parts of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, which is just as well, because he would have been fighting the French and the British if he tried, and I don't think that would have been terribly brilliant. But anyway, it didn't have that ambition. Um, and you could argue that the problem, in other words, in the case of Germany, is not so much the treaty or in its absence. It is the extent to which um, there is a willingness of, in, by you know, the mid-30s, not just of Hitler and his poetry, but also of a significant tranche of German opinion uh, to push for um, significant revisionism. And that takes us back to our discussion about appeasement. How precisely do you try to bring back into the international system states that had... Um, you know, that have been defeated. So, you know, you, you raised the point about the Vienna Agreement in 1814-15. Uh, I mean, one of the things about that is that the French are brought back into the system relatively quickly. So in 1823, as the French army invades Spain to help the king overthrow the, uh, the liberal um, Cortes, um, and, you know, the rest of the European powers accept that, just as they accept or they put up with France sending troops into the Low Countries in the 1830s. Um, 
And I think in that case, it's because the treaty at Versailles does, and in fact the reparations, doesn't preclude a post-war um, modus vivendi, uh, reconciliation. And I would say, as you yourself have made clear, that that is true also in the 1920s. You know, we can look at things like the Kellogg-Briand Pact, you know, you, you know, look at uh, uh, Zara Steiner's uh, um, volume one, and you can see this process taking place. So I don't think it helps to take this Keynesian view of sort of Versailles as a mark of Cain. I think, quite frankly, what is rather sick-making, and I'm using that term advisedly, is to hear so many people spouting the kind of arguments that would have been made by Adolf Hitler about the Treaty of Versailles. And I think, actually, we deserve better from a lot of our, a lot of our commentators. And, and uh, you know, I'm sorry that people don't rise to the challenge. There is a practical question. What else should they have done? Should they have had harsher terms? If they'd had harsher terms, how should the how would or should they have imposed them? And as a separate issue, and here I agree with Margaret Macmillan completely, and by the way, I think in her book she has had the rare skill of writing a good scholarly book, which is also highly accessible, so much credit to her. Um, I think in the case of Margaret Macmillan, what she has argued is fundamentally you shouldn't blame on nine, you shouldn't blame the 1930s on 1919 to 20, and I would argue that that is the case. I would very much argue that's the case, and I think people often underplay the specificities, the hard work necessary to look at what happens in. 3536, uh, response to, um, you know, German rearmament, uh, response in 36 to the Rhineland crisis. And, you know, thinking through the implications then, I mean, how far are, you know, problems in terms of Anglo-French inability to always coincide? How far is the difficulties posed by French domestic crisis, popular front, etc.? How far is American policy then germane, rather than what had happened uh, over a decade and a half earlier? So you would not say then that it was the failure of uh, an act of will, <clears throat> excuse me, by the Entente powers in the later in 1920s and the 1930s in particular, which uh, resulted in the uh, overthrow of the treaty? Oh, well, that's, again, a very good question. Now, um, I think, as I said, I, you know, I have written a military history of the interwar period, and I think it's worth having a look at from my perspective on that, from my perspective on that. But very briefly, um, I do think we're in a different set of circumstances, the ones we discussed when we were looking at our, the, the, uh, the program on appeasement. I think that in the uh, mid to late 1930s, um, it is very unclear uh, the extent to which you should prioritize the challenge from Japan, the challenge from Italy, or the challenge from Germany. That's point one. Point two, in the, each of those cases, it's also unclear what precisely you should do about them, uh, knowing, of course, that dealing with one or seeking to deal with one is almost certainly going to cause an accentuation of the problem with the other, rather like the challenge posed by Russia and China at the present day. And also, of course, we have the problem set by hindsight. And that, of course, is, again, extraordinarily difficult uh, as an issue to, to factor out of the situation. I mean, we know, for example, 
that in World War II, Italy is to join in and Japan is to join in. Actually, that was not all that clear at the time. And it's worth bearing in mind that despite their treaty agreements, uh, neither of those two powers um, joined Germany um, initially in the war. In the case of Japan, of course, it it didn't join against the Soviet Union at all. So I think one has to be very wary of assuming what should have been, whatever one means by should have been, the choices. And you mentioned the United States, and I also drew your attention when we were talking about appeasement to the reluctance of Canada to take a significant role in terms of in 1938 at the time the Munich crisis, um, I think it's worth bearing in mind that you know once one starts looking also at the exact practicalities, it's very unclear what you would have had done at any particular moment. Well, with that um, observation, Professor Black. I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thank you very much for listening to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much. 